On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and today I'm joined with Paramedic Crew Chief Gina. And I, I've heard about this story. I actually found you and, and asked you if you would come on the podcast and share this story. Um, for everybody that's out there listening, this is really an amazing story, and it really goes to the heart of what paramedics do every single day. Gina's been a paramedic and has been an EMS for 21 years. She's worked her way through the ranks to crew chief. Uh, so uh, she's also located in the, in the Central Valley of California, probably a really nice place to live for those of us that are kind of in the Midwest or some other places in the country. So we'll, we'll probably all be a little bit of jealous, a little bit jealous, uh, you know, uh, hearing hearing about the, the wonderful weather you have and that sort of stuff. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Yeah, thank you so much for in, inviting me to share this story. We're always thrilled when we get an opportunity to extrapolate a little bit more than than what the face book post initially said, um, which, by the way, has been shared in multiple languages around the world. And just on the Steve Harvey platform, it's been circulated over 19 million times. So this has been a whirlwind for us. And what a beautiful way to highlight what medics do every single day, because I don't feel Like what I did was anything special. I just received the gift of being able to circle back and um, see Will again. So um, to start from the beginning, I would say probably around 2007 or 8, Will and I 
kind of happenstance became friends. Um, he was never a patient of mine. And we were posting at one of our local posts at a, at a Chevron gas station. And I was outside of the ambulance stretching, kind of moving around. And I heard some ruckus in the dumpster behind me. So I made my way over and it's, it's, as you know, we, we tend to post in places that have high call volumes and this particular spot has a very high rate of transient traffic. So I found Will digging in the dumpster and I said hello because I, you know, we talked to everybody. There, there really isn't a lot of um, judgment and bias in our field because we see the richest of rich and the, and, and the poorest of poor and all the colors of the rainbow. And so I said hello and we started talking. And, and I think what struck me most about him was his eyes. He has these big, beautiful blue eyes. And when you are so close in, in treating people in their moment of need, you you see the fear, you see the subtleties of the eyes, you know, and, and I saw nothing but genuine kindness staring back at me. And so we started a very natural conversation. How are you? What are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What are you, you know, why are you digging through the trash? What are you looking for? Um, if it's food, I'll give you my PB and J, you know, in, in the, in my bag. And as you know, we, we do this all the time where we feed people, we give them lunches, we'll buy them tacos. You know, it's part of what we do in, in our job. And, um, so he had elaborated and saying that he was gathering recyclables and gave me some incredible insight about life on the streets in, in our particular town and enlightened me to this network that, that exists where there's a, there's a ringleader and she hires transients to collect recyclables that she turns in for money and doesn't give them the money, but instead gives them their drug of choice, whatever that may be. So it's a, it's, it's this really well networked operation that's been established in, in, in our town. So he was doing his part, getting his fix. And I was blown away, you know, that this was happening and taking place. And I appreciate that insight. I appreciate the, the, the knowledge. And I, and I, I'm pretty sure I thanked him for that. And we got a call and we left and that was that. So the next day we're sitting back at the same post around the same time. And we're not always at the same place at the same time. Uh, We're very mobile and we move around the town pretty, pretty regularly happened to be there, happened to see him again. And it was like, Hey, how are you? You know, do you remember me from a couple of days ago or yesterday? And, um, again, we just kind of started talking about our day. I probably shared with him some of the calls that we had run, um, asked him, you know, if he's been successful in his, in his journey. I, I, you know, I probably asked what I think I did. I knew what his drug of choice was, you know, at the time. And, so this went on for for several weeks and weeks turned into months and we developed a really strong bond, a really good friendship. Um and over the course of that of that time he shared with me that he wasn't always homeless, that he had a job, a very successful job actually. He was part of a construction team that 
ironically built Chevrons and that's where we met doing installing the gas pumps and things like that. So in the process of, of doing life, his wife succumbed to, to, I believe she, his first wife had an addiction and, and passed away, lost her life over it. And he describes her as the love of his life at that time. And he felt very cheated and angry at God. And he started using himself and that took him down a very slippery slope very, very quickly as drugs often do. And you couple that with grief and he found himself homeless very quick. I think if I remember correctly, when you posted the story, he he only used the drug once and was immediately addicted. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The first time he said he used, it was like, I want more instantly. And so that that craving turned into the driver and that driver took him down the the path of, of addiction very, very quickly. Um, and he soon lost his home. He lost his, his job. He didn't have transportation because he was just doing everything to get that next fix that evolved into, into other emotional, you know, issues and, and complications living life on the streets. And winter. So we met probably in springtime and we developed this friendship over the course of the year and wintertime was upon us and it was getting crazy, crazy cold. We have freezing temperatures, even in the Valley of California, we have hard freezes where our temperatures will drop into the teens, you know, during, during the night. And because we had developed this friendship, I felt like there, you know, there's more that I could do than just talking to him. So my husband went through his closet and we found a nice big parka and an old pair of boots. And I packed it all up with, you know, intentions of rallying the troops at work. Like, hey, let's operation will let's get all of our old clothes and and jackets together and and uh, help this guy out. Well, that night, I well, when I saw him, I think I probably carried this stuff around for a couple days and eventually saw him again, gave him the jacket, gave him the boots. And it was about six months that went by and I didn't see him. I didn't know what had happened to him. Um, we weren't, he wasn't at the Chevron like he usually was. It was the following summer that we reconnected at the Chevron and he had told me that he'd been incarcerated. And this was during the time, if you remember, the big housing crash. And and every, lots of people were losing their houses. And lots of people that didn't have addiction were finding themselves on the streets, at least you know here in California. Will had been sort of a mentor to this young family who found themselves on the streets after losing their house. And one night, another transient homeless man was being very aggressive and, and toward this family. And so Will intervened and it turned into a fight and the cops were called. And because Will had been on probation from a previous offense, he was found with, with drugs on him. So he was incarcerated for about six months. During that six months, everything he had owned was stolen. His wallet, his ID, his, his camp, you know, that he had set up under the bridge, all of that was, was stolen. So after speaking with him for a little while, he, he looked healthier, you know, and he said that 
he was trying to, you know, he's of course struggling to stay sober, but while he was in jail, it's, you kind of kick the habit because you don't have access to, to those substances as, as much. So he was really wanting to harness his sobriety, but didn't really have a lot of help. He was released back onto the streets and he, I could see the genuineness, you know, in his, and I could feel his, his desire to really want to do better. And he told me about a program that the county offers that, you know, if you had $7, you qualified for a voucher where you can get your ID, which would allow you to apply for temporary job assignments. And that temporary job assignment would eventually lead to temporary housing, which would eventually lead to full-time work and full-time housing and on and on and on. But he needed some form of ID and he needed $7 to get it. I, I rarely, rarely carry cash on me. And that day I had exactly $7 of cash in my pocket. And I kind of knew you were going to say that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. That's how the universe works in those, in those situations. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I told him, you know, with, with an abundance of love for him as a human being, you know, I said, I, I have $7. I'm absolutely happy to give it to you. Just please promise me you won't use it on drugs. And he promised me that he wouldn't. He took the $7. I'm a hugger. So I gave him a big hug and, and off he went. And that was the last time I saw him. And that was in 2008. Fast forward to 2019, October of 2019. Tell me about this gap. Tell me what was going through your mind. You know, I'm sure you wondered what happened to him. What were you thinking? The worst, you know, the worst case scenario, how, you know, unfortunately the, the cycle for me has been, you know, we have our frequent flyers, the people that call 911 all the time or find themselves in a position where other people are having to call 911 for them because they're losing their shit in the middle of somewhere public. And so we tend to get to know these people because we respond to them sometimes multiple times a day. Um, we know them by a first name basis. And so we all have these familiar stories of these, these frequent flyers. Not that Will was that, but we know enough of these cycles to unfortunately accurately predict what the outcome is going to be and which is deepening in their in their addiction ultimately leading to their demise and 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 usually their death so of course i was hopeful but i i was i'm also very realistic doing this for as long as i've done it you know he he very likely could have lost his life to his addiction and to his grief and to being Doing life on the streets, that's not easy for anybody. And, and nobody wishes that on themselves and nobody does it on purpose. You know, it's it's a combination of so many things. And our infrastructure is not designed for long-term success. It's a bunch of band-aids. And I think you realize that when you do this job at ground zero, that the people who are in charge of policy changes, in charge of government changes are so disconnected from ground zero that they just spin in circles over and over and over again. So the combination of all of those things, I really, I really didn't have a lot of hope for, for his outcome. And I, I think you bring up a really good point and you said it earlier, but when someone gets released from incarceration, 
they're typically turned out onto the street. They don't have ID. They don't have any money. They don't have a place to go. There's no support system in place. So it's really easy for them to fall back into old habits and, you know, go back to jail or to prison and never break the cycle. So, you know, I, I think you summed it up really well when you said it's a series of band-aids and not really a long-term solution. Right, right. You know, as a human being, you empathize with that. You sympathize with that because you you see how difficult it is for anybody to pull themselves out of the multitude of situations that they find themselves in being being homeless. So I'm very part-time. I dropped to part-time um, in 2015 and have been fully enjoying my other my other passions and being a mom. And so I happened to pick up a shift one night. We were held over, which I there's very few things I hate more than being held over. I was being held over um, and sent to post when I should have been on my way home. And so I was a little pissy, totally admit that. And I told my partner, we're not going all the way over there. I want you to stop here. And I had to use the restroom. So ironically, we stopped at a, at a different Chevron and I jumped out to use the restroom. And when I came out, there is this man standing about five feet in front of the door, which was kind of weird, you know, and he's just standing there and he wasn't moving and he was just staring so intensely at me. And I'm like, what the hell, you know? And he's like, do you remember me? Do you remember me? And, and I'm, I'm like, no, should I remember you? And he's like, there were so many years have gone by you gave me a pair of boots and you gave me a jacket and you gave me $7 so I can get my ID. And I was like, Oh my God, Will!" like I instantly, I saw the eyes cause he was a lot, you know, healthier then and, and truly unrecognizable in that, in that moment. Cause he was not the same human that I left in 2008. And so the the tears started. We snot cried right there in the middle of the Chevron and held each other. And he just said, you, you saved my life. That $7 saved my life. It allowed me to, I did get my ID and I did get temporary work and I did get temporary housing. And I, I got married and I fell in love and I'm working and you know, um, wow, we never, we never get that. We never have that amount of time between those entanglements of people that mean a lot to us in that moment to see it come full circle. So, um, I forgot about being held over. In fact, we were cleared back to ops, cleared to secure for over a half an hour before my partner came in and was like, did you fall in the toilet? Are you having GI issues? What the heck's going on? I want to go home. And, and so I'm, I'm standing there crying with this man. I made the Chevron attendant. The picture that has gone around the internet was taken on my phone by the Chevron attendant because I'm like, I need to see, I just take a picture of us. Cause my husband knew who he was and, and remembers, you know, the, the journey and the story. And, so I couldn't wait to get home to tell him and we exchanged information. We promised to stay in touch with each other and 
I knew that I wasn't going to be able to sleep, you know, like I've got all of this energy and, and excitement and just overwhelming gratitude that I, I couldn't stop crying. I cried the whole way to ops. I sat in my car and I live about an hour away from our operations and I didn't want to drive, you know, crying all over myself. So I took a big breath in just a moment to get it out, you know? So I, I, I quickly just, I posted the picture. I posted what was in my heart about being so thankful and the power of kindness and seizing the moment because it really does have the power to change the trajectory of someone's existence. And such a minor, seemingly insignificant act of kindness changed this man's life. And that was so, and is still so big for me and such a reward and something that I'll never, ever forget, something that is evergreen and always such a gift to go back to and and to retell and to share. And um, we're still friends. We actually have a couple of interviews coming up. People are still requesting, you know, interviews and podcasts. And um, he is, he, unfortunately, his second wife had, um, had a very unfortunate fall in the shower one day she passed away, but I'm happy to report that Will is running a men's ministry, a food bank out of the church that he found so much solace in, and he's killing it in life. He, and prior to where he's at today, he was paying it forward when he found and had full-time housing, he was literally scouting out people that would come to the church ministry food giveaway and invite them to his house. And he would mentor them one-on-one. He took him to, he would take people to their doctor's appointments, job interviews. Um, If they needed substance abuse counseling, he would take them to their counseling and just embodied that, that mentorship and, and, has facilitated on his own, fully recovering people, getting them off the street and independent into their own living situation. And he did that with, with several young men that he had met. And now he's running a food ministry, the same food ministry that he was receiving in and participating in when he was on the street. So, so beautiful. He was, he was remarried to, a beautiful woman in December of 2020. So yeah, he's, he's doing phenomenal and um, we have a really special, really special bond. Yeah. I would imagine you do. And it's what stands out to me is $7 turned this man's life around and the kindness in your heart. It's, it's seven stinking dollars and yeah, it, it's, what has been so beautiful in these last couple of years as the story has circulated is reading so many stories about other people's journey with sobriety and other people's journey on both the giving and the receiving end of addiction and the hope that it has instilled in people who have loved ones who are on the streets struggling and they feel lost and helpless and, you know, love 
intense, insane, non-judgmental love is really, it wasn't the $7, it was the love. And and that's what's going to heal the planet. It's what's going to heal all of us from the inside out is deeply, madly loving each other. And this story is a perfect example of, of why that's the best medicine of all time. I think that's very well said. Gina, I, I'm really glad that you took some time out and shared this story. I know it's gone all over Facebook and it's gone all around the world, but um, I'm honored that you came on the podcast and shared it with our listeners. And I hope that sometime in the near future, you'll come back and maybe tell another another story or two. We'd, we'd love to have you back on the podcast. I would love to. And thank you so much for being such an advocate in this industry and raising awareness and madly, deeply loving the industry to really kind of pull the lens back on on the deeper needs of of the people that do this job and emotional and mental wellness is really um, a big focus and I think it's important and you're doing such a beautiful organic job of bringing that to light so thank you thank you for those kind words and I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon absolutely thank you so much if you enjoyed this podcast please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.